0: Dominic Kramer. Yes. Kind, talented, intelligent, handsome, fragrant Dominic Kramer. How's it going?
1: Fragrant.
0: I'm just I'm this is me trying to be nice to you because I had a couple of pieces of feedback that I was mean to you on the podcast last week. So I would just like to apologize and say that from now on I am going to be nothing but sweet and nice to you. I mean, firstly, you were mean to
1: me on the podcast last week. You were mean to me on the podcast every week. Um, but I sh- yeah, I'm yeah, I'm grateful that you've had your ways pointed out to you. And let's see how this goes.
0: It feels really unnatural already. But you
1: did call me fragrant.
0: I don't know where that came from. I was just looking for adjectives. As I told you, it's it feels really unnatural to me. I'm not good at being nice to you. But I am going to give it a go. Um, how's it going? What's happening in Amsterdam? It's
1: fine. Um, I feel that I became a little bit more European this week after I swapped over my driving license from a British one to a Dutch one because of, well, you know why.
0: But did you have to take your test again or anything?
1: No. If you do it before the B word, then it's all fine. Yeah. Um, And the main effect is that I was finally able to get rid of the horrible photo of me aged 17 that I'd had on my British driving (laughs) licence
0: Yes. however many years. Mine's terrible. It's very pouty.
1: Are you going to swap yours?
0: It's one of the many things I need to get around to and haven't. My main thing is actually getting like leave to remain in the country. So I'm I'm making that my focus at the moment.
1: Oh yeah. I can see that that might be a first step. Yeah. Um, How's your week been?
0: It's been all right. I am in London again this week and managed to get through a whole Eurostar journey from Paris without any more bomb scares or bumping into Nigel Farage. So that was great. Oh,
1: it must have been positively boring.
0: (laughs) It was in a really nice way. But um, what's going on this week?
1: This week, the fashion world is mourning the death of Karl Lagerfeld. So we are going to be speaking to Katie's colleague, Fiekra Gibbons, the editor of Culture, Food and Fashion at the French press agency AFP. And as someone who knows nothing at all about high fashion, I'll be very interested to hear Fiacra's take on what kind of influence Karl had on the fashion world.
0: could have fooled me that you don't know anything about fashion.
1: Well, thanks.
0: You're welcome. This is me being nice again. (laughs) It's going really well. Um, Fiekra is just like an endless source of amazing stories about Lagerfeld. And uh, we do want to talk a a little bit about his kind of complex legacy as well uh, of this undoubtedly iconic European for better or worse. Um, But yeah, he's got amazing stories and a lovely Irish accent. We don't have enough Irish accents on this podcast.
1: We do not. Um, But first, we should start with Good Week, Bad Week, because I've decided to rest Commemoration Corner this week following a bit of a uh, (laughs) boo-boo last week when I said that it was the centenary of Lithuania's independence. And actually, it was the 101st birthday. Apologies, Lithuania.
0: Dominic can't count.
1: Hey, you're meant to be being nice to me. Sorry, sorry. It's still worth celebrating, uh, perhaps not quite as much. Yeah, I can't count. I should probably go back to school and brush up on my maths. Who's it been a bad week for?
0: Uh, It's been a bad week for Jewish French people, or a bad few weeks, really. It's been a spate of really horrible anti-Semitic acts. Uh, You might have seen photos in the news of a Jewish cemetery in Alsace, in eastern France, where somebody spray-painted nearly 100 swastikas onto gravestones. And somebody wrote the word Juden in German across a bagel shop in Paris. And there's been some really ugly anti-Semitic acts linked to uh, Gilles Jaune protests. There's a philosopher called Alan Finkelkraut. He was filmed being harassed by protesters in the street and they were shouting things like, go back to Tel Aviv at him and stuff like that. Um, He was born in Paris, by the way. He's not Israeli, not that it matters. Well, it does. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, But there's been this whole bunch of stuff that has generated a lot of headlines to the extent where the Israeli immigration minister said to Jewish French people this week, you know what, just come home, come home to Israel. And in France itself, there's been a lot of soul-searching. You can't forget that this is a country in which tens of thousands of Jewish people were deported to death camps during the Holocaust. And that has left really big scars in the country. Um, And this is still a country as well that has the biggest Jewish population in Europe. People haven't taken this horrible anti-Semitic stuff lightly. And there have been really big protests over the last week in Paris and other cities. Thousands of people coming out to say, literally, that's enough. And Macron had this big dinner with Jewish leaders in Paris this week and said, that he thought Europe was seeing the worst anti-Semitism since World War II. And it really does feel like a problem across the continent. Uh, in Britain, there's a whole bunch of MPs that have just left the Labour Party, partly because of rampant anti-Semitism in the party. And uh, in Germany, even on this podcast, we did an interview with Wenzel Mikowski back in May about this awful anti-Semitic bullying that his kid had gone through at school. So It's everywhere and uh, it's really horrible.
1: So uh, amongst the gilets jaunes, how how big is anti-Semitism as a problem?
0: Um, I think it's clear that it's not coming from, it's absolutely not coming from the majority of gilets jaunes. Like most gilets jaunes, just to stress this, they're just normal people that live in small towns that say that their lives are too expensive. Um, and wanted to protest against Macron. But there are some pockets of anti-Semitism in both these kind of far left and far right wings of the Gilets jaunes, right? Because remember, the Gilets jaunes is a very sort of diverse group. It's made up of lots of different people from different political backgrounds. And you do on their Facebook groups and on the streets as well, like occasionally hear this kind of, the world is run by Jews kind of thing from them, which is really horrible. As the weeks go on and the Gilets jaunes have lost steam, as a movement increasingly the ones that are left are the ones who are on the far right and the far left which is why you get things like this horrible scene of this philosopher getting hounded on the street and them shouting stuff at him like um they were shouting la france which is basically like france is our country i.e not your country and that is really really horrible to hear
1: yeah that does sound really really horrible um yeah and it's as you say it's not exclusive to france it seems like it's a pretty Europe-wide problem at the moment It's growing. Yeah. So, good week.
0: Cheer me up, please. Who's had a good week?
1: We are sending good week and much good luck to the Serbian Prime Minister, Anna Branavich, who became a mother this week after her partner gave birth to a baby boy named Igor. It's thought to be the first time ever that a world leader in a same-sex relationship has become a mother whilst in power. Prime Minister Branovich's partner is a doctor, Milica Djurgic, and they are said to have met in a gay bar in the capital, Belgrade. Is that code for Tinder... I don't know. Um, Branovic gets quite a bit of criticism in Serbia from the LGBT plus community for not standing up for LGBT rights strongly enough. In Serbia, same-sex relationships are still not legally recognized, which I find quite extraordinary considering the prime minister is a lesbian woman in a relationship with another woman. Same-sex partners cannot adopt children. And actually, it's written into the constitution that marriage is only between a man and a woman. Alexander Savic of the Belgrade Pride Info Center said to Balkan Insight, quote, News that Branabic became a parent is good in general, but it also just shows how much privileged she is, end quote. And yeah, he's right that for most same-sex couples in Serbia, it's extremely difficult to become parents. And Branabic doesn't seem to be doing much to make things easier for fellow LGBT people. That said, we still want to send Anna and Milica the best of luck in bringing up Igor because I imagine running the country whilst also looking after a baby isn't the easiest of tasks. So kudos to you. I see my friends and family who aren't running countries but have normal jobs and are trying to bring up babies and it seems hard enough. So good luck. Go for it.
0: Can I just say love the name Igor on a baby? I think that's great.
1: Igor isn't Igor... No, that's Ivan the Terrible. Igor was also... Uh, what, isn't he a <laughs> mythical figure?
0: I don't know, but I'm hoping Igor isn't going to be terrible. I think he's probably going to be a very sweet little baby. I've become a lot fonder of babies since I became an aunt last year. I didn't used to like them that much, but now that I've found at least one that I like, it's great.
1: Oh, that's really nice. I'm happy for you. You're softening.
0: <laughs> My heart. You're being
1: nice to me. It's You're spotting. liking babies. What's going What's on? What's happening? Yeah, Igor Igor is actually a stock character lab assistant lab assistant is that right according to wikipedia Igor's like a stock character of a gothic villain
0: oh yeah Igor
1: I was right there was something kind of
0: spooky spooky I'm sure that's why the happy couple named their baby Igor uh, anyway congratulations to the uh, first family of Serbia We're now going to the land of high fashion, which is not something I know anything about, but luckily our guest does. Uh, We're going to talk about Karl Lagerfeld, the German fashion designer who, of course, died this week at the age of 85. Whatever you think of him, it's Difficult to dispute that he was an iconic European in his own way, a very pan-European character, German-born, lived a lot of his life in France, very comfortable living and working in about four languages, and instantly recognisable, of course, with the shock of white hair and the sunglasses. And certainly someone that's had a massive impact on fashion over the past half a century, running Chanel, designing for Fendi, running his own label it's been quite interesting over the following the conversation in the days since he's died because at first it was all like oh my god death of a genius and then it was all like uh oh, carl lagerfeld said some terrible things over the years particularly about fat people and now i feel like people are kind of oscillating between the two
1: yeah I read quite a few interesting articles of people saying yeah we just why is everyone celebrating him so much like he said awful things and he did say some awful things and I've read them but um yeah I'll be interested to hear what Fikra's take on that is
0: Fikra Gibbons my friend and colleague culture editor extraordinaire at Agile Sports Press who is on the line from Paris Fikra, so you have covered fashion and like the business of fashion for very many years. What exactly have we lost with the death of Karl Lagerfeld? Like, what did he represent?
2: Well, he's he's kind of a person who kind of bridges the post-war revival of fashion after after the war in Paris when Christian Dior came around. He comes from that era right to where we are now, which is streetwear, which is Karl's other great forte. And what he did is he took the kind of classic uh, couturier um, looks and knowledge and savoir-faire that came from Christian Dior and all those people. And Yves Saint Laurent, who was his great friend and then became his rival because they fell out over a man. And all those people, all those great designers, he took that and then kind of completely um, just threw the cat among the pigeons by kind of throwing in this kind of street fashion sportswear kind of quirks that kind of completely reinvented them and gave them a whole kind of new lease of life and kind of created what we see now as the kind of booming uh, modern luxury fashion market.
1: Uh And so if we go to the high street today, like away from luxury fashion, do you see his influence
2: there as well? Well, it's more of how the high street influenced him rather than the other way around. Okay. He's someone who could take the heritage of a of a brand, all the sort of tropes of, um, of Chanel, for instance, which are the tweed jackets, the pearls, all that sort of stuff, and he could give it a completely new twist. He could just take what people are wearing on the street and apply that to the whole kind of Chanel classics. That's why he could work well into his 80s on three brands at the same time, which is just amazing. He did himself, he did 14 collections a year. I mean, it's an extraordinary amount of work. All these brands had different personalities and different histories. He designed not just for Chanel, but for Fendi, which was a kind of um, a very fuddy-duddy Roman um, furrier in the 1960s, mid-1960s. It was kind of what, you know, furs that bourgeois Roman women wore. And it was just really very local, very Roman, and that's it. And he kind of just took it up and just injected the whole kind of swinging 60s vibe into this place and changed it completely. And that's what he did in, every, uh, in everywhere he worked. He took what they had done before, took the best things they ever did, gave them a whole completely new whiz and kept reinventing them with every collection. He, kind of, he said he had kind of fashion Alzheimer's that he, he, never, he tried never to repeat himself, but sometimes he may have because he kind of forgot what he'd done, but he'd done so many things. <laughs> he, just kind of, he had this unbelievable brain. He said, he said to me once, I'm a machine. <laughs> this is how I just keep doing it, and and he did, and I was talking to Inez de la Fessange, who was one of his kind of you know one of the person that he kind of uh, was one of his muses, probably for the longest period in his life at Chanel. And she said, he would, you know, everybody in the in the 80s people would be at these mad supermodel parties and whatever, where things were massively decadent. It was like, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah days of Paris fashion. After huge shows where they would spend millions on, after the show, he would be there in the middle of this huge huddle of literati, kind of still working. When everybody else was getting off their heads at three o'clock in the morning, he was still working. That work was his thing. That's what made him tick.
0: What was he like in person? Because when I think about him, I just think of this, like, caricature of a... Uh, like the the hair and the glasses and the wittiness of him as well. Like he said all these fantastic things. But like, what was he like?
2: He was exactly like that. I mean, Carl's greatest creation. He would, did not change. There's no look you can say that was Carl Lagerfeld. But the thing that he did create was Carl, the legend of Carl. And I mean, he was a hugely overweight guy like 15 years ago. You know, he was a huge fat guy, and now we think of Carl, we think of this kind of you know a um, thin guy with his high starched collars and his kind of, you know, 18th century absolute monarch look about him with, uh, you know, his white powdered ponytail, these skinny um, uh, jeans, heady Schliemann's skinny jeans. He lost 42 kilos to slim it. And then he, you know, of course, wrote a best-selling dieting book after that because that's the thing about Carl. He always spun everything. He always had a kind of great, a commercial product that came out of everything, even though... He, like, he made, he's made billions for so many people, but of course he's spent it all himself, pretty much everything he's earned. He's, like, spent almost as quickly as he, as he earned it. He was very, very funny, unbelievably witty. When you would meet him and you would, he would look at you and you could ask him any question, the cheekiest question you could imagine, and the more cheekier it was the more he loved it, he would have a sparkle in his eye and then he would come back at you you could just see it going click, 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 click I'm going to have to top that. It was repartee, it was like the court of Versailles where the kind of wits competed with each other that was his century, the 18th century, like that's where he wanted to be, that's where he wished he had been born I think, I mean he bought millions and millions on 18th century furniture and all this sort of stuff, and I think he kind of saw himself in terms of, of those sort of great court wits and um, although he's a terribly modern person and one he was like streetwise, very smart, completely future orientated, there's a guy who just did not look back, he was just looking at the future all the time, yet his head or a part of his heart was completely in the 18th century, that's the way he was and his last show, his very very last show was that, it was kind of 18th century bustier and whatever with this kind of streetwise, streetwear kind of spin to them but he was so funny. He was naturally funny and really outrageous. Even if in his own life, you know, he lived actually quite a, I mean, he lived a luxury life, obviously. But in terms of his needs, it was quite. So he didn't take drugs. You know, he didn't drink really. He drank dead coke cups about it, and his vices. But he didn't really have that many vices, really, apart from just spending so much and spending on his friends as well. He just gave an awful lot of money to an awful lot of people. He was really generous, actually, you know.
1: He did get himself into trouble sometimes, though, with things he said. Um, and he said some things that uh, he's been accused of being a bit misogynistic with some comments he made about women in public. And he said quite a lot of fattest things. And he even got uh, accused of being Islamophobic um, around the refugee crisis in Europe. Um, Do you think some of these comments uh, were taken too literally and it was just his wit or do you think that we're right to also remember that he sometimes said the wrong
2: thing? Oh, he was a total bitch and, you couldn't resist shocking people. This is someone who's been shocking people and loving and taking absolute pleasure out of shocking people. I think since he's been five years of age, when he asked his mother, could he have a valet? You know, he's that (laughs) sort of guy. And uh, was he sexist? Well, he absolutely adored women and was much happier with in the company of women than he was with men. That is absolutely, completely the way he was. Um, Was he racist? Probably for his age. Yeah, he probably was. But was he hugely open to people from every other culture and was he hugely curious about people? Yes, he hugely was. Did he change his mind? He changed his mind all the time. He was politically incorrect and he hated the whole kind of corset of of any conformity or any sort of correctness. These were red rags to him, so he would just he would walk into it and say these things. But the thing about him is he somehow got away with it. He said so many things that would have been career ending for almost anybody else. But he just people went, ah, oh, that's just Carol. And actually, it was just Carol because he would be perfectly capable of saying the the opposite, you know, five minutes later and turning things around. He was hugely intelligent, hugely self-aware, very aware of the world. And if you said something outrageous like that, if you challenged him, he would sometimes, you know, say, "Ah, maybe, maybe not. He would go with it. He was one of those people who loved the heat of debate and loved, like, throwing a hand grenade into any given situation. So it was more in, in his personality. And I think he got that from his mother. He had a very special relationship with his mother. I mean, he grew up at a very strange time. He grew up near Hamburg in this kind of country house. This is in the darkest years of German history. He had all that as well is in there. I mean, he had this strange relationship with his mother where, I mean, I think he was trying to impress his mother all his life. She told him he was stupid. She called him the mule. She told him he was ugly. But also, you know, he also mythologized himself as well. And she was the main character in that. And when he's cremated, his ashes will be mixed with hers. And his the lover really the only person apart from her that really got close to him in his life, Jacques, who um, slept right with everybody in in the wildest days of Paris fashion, including Yves Saint Laurent. And that that's where the whole split with Yves Saint Laurent happened, and the, you know the, where they it was over a man.
0: Oh. 'Cause he che- so Jacques cheated on Carl with Saint Laurent, is that it?
2: He did, yes, he did. And he cheated this. on with a lot of people, but Carl, you know, forgave him everything. But even Carl basically they came through in the same competition, the Walmart competition the same year and became huge friends and were inseparable for a period. And then Saint Laurent's career took off very, very rapidly. He he took over at Dior after Christian Dior died suddenly. And so, in a way, kind of, um, Carl was left a bit flapping in his slipstream. But just work, 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 work for everybody and every oh, for for years and years and years, and was much more of a provocateur than him. And they they still had a friendship, but then things got really, really sour. There was a rive, there was friendship rivalry, and then things got r- really sour over Jacques. When Jack cheated on him. Because Yves Sonar all really fell for Jack. Jack was this amazing, you know, charismatic, beautiful, funny, outrageous guy that so Carl met when, when Jack was only nineteen. And Carl just looked after him always like he like he was an impossible person. He would get himself into terrible situations and Carl just rescued him again and again and again. And then nursed him till he died of AIDS when he was thirty eight. And that kind of generosity, a quiet generosity, I mean, Karl Lagerfeld, in a way, cultivated this idea of him as kind of nasty, acid-tongued, frightfully straight-talking German to keep people away a little bit, you know, to keep people slightly at arm's length. That's what he was like. He kept you slightly at arm's length while at the same time kind of wanting to impress you. That was the strange uh, push-you-pull-me chemistry that was around him. He was very aloof. He was aloof, but there was a need to impress people at the same time and a need to be kind of kind of loved and admired in a kind of backwards slightly twisted slightly way <laughs> you know that was that was his way he kind of delighted in charming and horrifying at the same time
0: um, can we talk about the cat, Fikra? Chupette. Chupette, yes. Most pampered cat in the world. Tell us about her.
2: Yeah, Chupette is a, is a kind of terribly furry Burmese cat that one of Carl's boys, one of the many um, beautiful male models that he kind of admired and kept around like uh, like beautiful objects, really. One of them brought this Burmese cat to him in 2011, and he was babysitting the cat. This is a typical relationship where he would be looking after things for other people. And. Carl decided this cat was just amazing and the way it moved. He just loved this cat. So this cat became hugely uh, spoiled and add off silver platters and has its has its own Louis Vuitton luggage and things like this, and has its own bodyguard and two maids and the whole thing and has, it's the star of ads in Germany and japan and and will have a part of his fortune. The cat has already earned about three and a half million uh, euros from doing ads when that money has <laughs> been put away for the cat, and whoever looks after this cat will be a wealthy person as well.
0: But under French law, the cat can't like literally inherit the money, though, can she?
2: No, under French law, a pet cannot inherit money, but that didn't seem to put Carl off at all. He said, well, you know, I'm German, so it doesn't really matter. But I think basically <laughs> there's a foundation that's been set up for the cat, so uh, it'll, be, it'll be done like that uh, through a trust. There's going to be quite a few people I think who are going to benefit from his will. And um, we don't know how much money is left. He was much more prudent in his last years than he was in the middle part of his life where things are a little bit more chaotic. And he's said to have about 200 million stashed away. But Chanel has become, well, all his brands, but particularly Chanel, we know now is, is even more successful than we ever thought. It's worth 20 billion dollars. It's vast. It's a private company. He had carte blanche and without him, it would have been, well, it wouldn't have, never have survived. That's clear. How do you think
1: these all the companies that he was involved with Chanel and Fendi and his own companies are going to cope without him? Do you think there's going it's going to be wobbly for a while or do you think he had enough supporters around
2: him that his legacy will continue? I think definitely at Chanel, Chanel is utterly bulletproof, and so is Fendi in its way. What Carl did was he drew and drew and drew. He would do these amazing sketches. He was a great photographer, as so well. he's a very, very talented photographer. So he did these sketches all the time and then passed it on to his studio, to his atelier, and to these amazing people that were very, very good at putting his ideas into practice. So in a way, the whole system is there. Chanel really is more about Coco Chanel than it was ever about Carl. It's that legacy that that he was drawing on will be drawn on again by the next person who comes on, and we'll draw on what Carl did as well. And that is, to some extent, the same at Fendi. As for Carl's own brand, we shall see. I think the idea of Carl, for many people who buy from that brand, is as strong as Coco Chanel was after she died. So I think the memory of Carl and the fact that the thing that Carl built more than anything else was the idea of Carl will probably ensure that it does survive as well.
0: What do we know about uh, Virginie Villa, who's Lagerfeld's kind of right-hand woman who's now taking over from him there at Chanel?
2: Virginie Villar is a very nice person and a very, very, very capable person who's been his right hand and left hand, as Carol said himself, for for many, many years at Chanel. She's very, very good, very popular, is a very, very, very safe pair of hands and has been, you know, knows the whole um, Chanel back catalogue inside out and knows what people want and knows how the business runs from top to bottom. I think Chanel, probably it's a right time for a change at Chanel, right time for new ideas. Gucci has been rising and Balenciaga has been rising on young, very, very cheeky, slightly kitschy, pushing the boundaries designers over the last couple of years. And they've been really, really raking it in, really. They've been a, a major challenge in the wings. So it's really a time for new thinking. Whether she will be that person, we'll see, maybe in the medium term. I mean, she could surprise us and completely work in a way we have never expected her. But other designers have been waiting in the wings for a while. Once once upon a time, Carl thought that um, the Colombian designer, Heider Ackerman, would be the person who would take over. His career is kind of stalled a little bit. But the other person that really a lot of people think may is almost like born to lead uh, Chanel is is the British designer, Phoebe Philo, who left Celine uh, about a year, just over a year ago, and has a huge following, a particularly feminist following, and is a really very, very original, very, very good designer and has many, many fans. And people think that it could be the right time for her to, to step up and take a really, really big brand and that she has really the, the eye to do it.
1: So he was just an outrage monger. He was one of these people that just liked saying outrageous things. I mean, that doesn't totally excuse him in my mind, but it does explain it at least a bit. And I'll be pleased if a feminist takes over Chanel. I'd be interested to see if that actually shakes up the fashion world a bit from where I'm standing, it seems rather necessary
0: watch this space let's see Um, one of the more interesting things I read on Lagerfeld was the Twitter exchange between uh, your favourite person in the whole world Jamila Jamil and Cara Delevingne both beautiful models obviously and they had this really smart respectful exchange about him which was really lovely to watch but it was also like people are having this nuanced respectful intelligent conversation and you're both also really hot like it's just not fair you (laughs) leave nothing for the mortals
1: and Jamila Jamil just had a beautiful album written about her by James Blake I mean Uh, could her life be any better right now
0: Jamila we love you come on the podcast
1: For today's happy ending, I want to tell you about a jobbing artist who has gained unexpected international success. Louis Huenoud is an artist who, up until recently, made his living from painting barbershops in his home country of Benin in the west of Africa. In Benin, there is a rich culture of painted signs at barbershops using bright colours and painting usually on plywood with commercial paints. Louis, however, has recently expanded his reach somewhat and has broken onto the Finnish art scene with a bang. First, a piece of his work was brought up by the Finnish Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and now an exhibition in Finland entitled Bad Hair Day Leaders has opened to much acclaim and to a big article on the BBC News website, which you should check out in our show notes. As the title suggests, it's an exhibition that features paintings of world leaders painted in the style that Louis uses when painting for barbershops in Benin. These are portraits of May, Merkel, Trump and 11 other world leaders. The exhibition is organised alongside a Finnish artist who discovered him on travels and this Finnish artist came up with the idea of transporting this barbershop style to the Finnish art scene. Seems like it's been going well and it's been a good step for Louis and his sons, one of whom is his assistant, and he started receiving private commissions from Finnish customers. So congrats to Louis for making it big in Finland. I hope you enjoy your newfound success.
0: This is so great. I've just added to my bucket list like making it on the finished art scene. New life goal.
1: You can only dream, although your uh your wonderful artwork for this podcast, you never know that could be your routine.
0: <laughs> also true. Maybe we should we should commission Louis to like make us some replacement artwork.
1: I mean that is actually a brilliant idea. <laughs> Well, that's all we've got for you this week. But before we go, if you like this week's episode, then maybe... I mean, it is free and it will always be free but you could just decide to help us out and help make our episodes even better by supporting us on Patreon. Patreon Patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast. It's a kind of subscription service for artists and podcast creators, anyone who's kind of creating content, where fans can give a monthly contribution as little as $1 a month to help out their struggling creators. And if you hated the podcast this week, then maybe support us on Patreon anyway to help us get better, please. Thank you.
0: (laughs) That would be nice. We'd like to thank in particular this week, uh, Lucy Sharilao. I really hope I'm saying that right. and probably not. Lucas Walker and Ball Green. You are very good people. And can I just say, you can chip in just a dollar a month, but um, the people who've been chipping in $5 or $10 have been getting some voicemail messages from us, sort of like very, very mini podcast episodes recorded just for them. And people have been loving them. We've been getting such nice messages back saying how freaky but also really nice it is um i'm gonna go enjoy all this freakish sunshine that climate change has brought to london in february
1: is it still daytime i've got all the curtains closed so um to me it
0: seems like it's the middle of the night thank you very much dominic for insulating us from the bell noises which oh can we hear them now yeah yeah you can still hear them through the curtains those insulating (laughs) curtains don't work very well do they we should go have a great week everyone and we'll see you next week bye bye bye